0: the carbon cost of putting up a building is now bigger than the energy use.
1: Somewhere between 40 and 45% of of carbon emissions are as a result of the built environment. So whether that's construction projects, so, you know, things being built or buildings in operation, i.e. buildings being used, heating, cooling, ventilation, all those types of things that use energy ultimately produce carbon emissions. We are a massive contributor to global warming. So we need to we need to reduce that and limit the impact that we make. And you can only, you know, you can only understand the impact that you're making on something if you accurately measure it. We've got an existing standard out there, existing professional
0: statement produced in twenty seventeen. What it's doing is it's telling you how to do a carbon assessment over the life cycle of a building.
1: We're building on upon that now with a, a new version to be produced later this year. But essentially, it's a way of organisations understanding what the, the the carbon intensity, for want of a better phrase, is of their projects, their assets, their their buildings, and and what that what that ultimately is. You know that in whatever small way is contributing to that overall forty odd percent of of carbon emissions from the built environment. It's a way of measuring and controlling and ultimately reducing that, that output.
2: Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Rian Owen.
3: And I'm John Young.
2: In this episode, we're looking at a tool that architects, surveyors and other building and infrastructure specialists can use to understand the carbon impacts of their work. The RICS Whole Life Carbon Assessment is currently being revised and is open for public consultation as this episode airs in April 2023.
3: In the 1950s, London began building glass and steel office buildings. They were a response to the devastation of the Second World War and the pressing need for space.
0: If you look at um, the evolution of office buildings, from 1955 through to 2023 those buildings look pretty much the same what's changed is that they've now got air conditioning and they've gone from a single sheet of glass to two sheets to three sheets but other than that they're pretty much you know where's the evolution been
2: for almost 70 years much of city architecture has followed the same pattern it's seen as an efficient and reliable way of building
0: but if you look at what happened between The beginning, but before the First World War, where you had, you know, your Edwardian architecture, Lutyens, and so on. You go and you flip that into what happened between the First and Second World Wars, where you had, you know, the Modern Movement of architecture, Le Corbusier, and all of this came out from both social and architectural reasons, uh, and resulted in a completely different architecture.
3: Today, the world is going through a slow-motion cataclysm that rivals the Second World War in significance. Avoiding the most disastrous effects of climate change requires the elimination of carbon emissions. And just as the devastation of war set architecture on its current path, so too could the threat of environmental catastrophe establish a new path.
0: Those glassy tower blocks after the Second World War would never have been built if we hadn't had that kind of existential threat, which meant we had to come up with something to produce a lot of space very quickly and uh, cheaply. Now, you could argue the merits of that, but at the end of it, there was a big change, and I think we're at the same sort of point of inflection. And I think it's going to involve a lot of clever use of materials. I think it's going to involve a lot of um, reuse of existing buildings, reuse of materials generally.
2: That was Simon Sturgis. He was the lead author of a professional statement published by the RICS The guidance aims to give architects and designers a method for assessing the carbon impacts of their buildings. It is currently being revised and public consultation is taking place.
3: You can find more details about the consultation in the show notes.
2: Simon began thinking about how the choices made by architects relate to carbon use when he was working on refurbishment projects.
0: I uh, ran an architectural practice for quite a few years And then come the, about 2008, we started to look at the whole issue of carbon accounting. Um, And of course, and that was because we were working on a lot of refurbishment projects. And what became clear was that a lot of these projects, which are predominantly commercial, was that you were removing a lot of material from buildings, which... May have only been fifteen or so years old, and of course it had no commercial or financial value, but it did have. Uh, we felt it must have some sort of value, and we then figured out that it had some sort of carbon value, and so we then started to think about that. And in about 2010, I and a colleague from my own office, we it was then my I, my company was then Sturgis Carbon Profiling, and we um, wrote a paper for the RICS called Redefining Zero, which was saying that. Net zero should not be just about energy use, it should be about materials as well. It should be embodied carbon and operational carbon, which was a bit of a novelty at that point in time.
2: The RICS supported the development of these ideas by Simon and Athena Papacosta into the whole life carbon assessment published in 2017.
3: Matthew Collins works for RICS in construction and infrastructure management. He says that this is a tool that can allow surveyors to consider carbon costs in the same way they consider financial costs.
1: We've had cost measurement methodologies for, for hundreds of years. I'm a quantity surveyor by profession, and I, when I undertake a cost estimate or a cost plan for, for a client or an organisation, I follow a certain methodology to be able to produce that cost assessment. What we're doing here is providing the same process but for calculation of carbon, whole life carbon, so all of the carbon that, that your project will to ultimately emit right through from when you start thinking about your project to ultimately, you know, when that building or asset or whatever it is, is ultimately comes to the end of its life and is either, you know, heaven been demolished or, or repurposed or, or done whatever with.
2: But a few years after the assessment was first published, Simon realised it needed more work.
0: But it's obviously been very successful. And so um, about 18 months ago, I saw, during COVID lockdown, I thought, well, you know, this document is now a bit out of date. We've had various things happen. We've had uh, guidances written by others like Istructe and Sibsi and so on. Uh, and we also had evolution in standards, and we had also the net zero trajectory produced by the government. One of the problems with it was, was quite sort of geeky, and it was quite difficult to sort of penetrate, if you like for uh, for people. So um, in during the lockdown, I got a team together. And we started to think about how we might redo it and what we might do, and that was all very well in lockdown because people didn't have a lot to do. But after lockdown. <laughs> People then, of course, were getting on with real work, uh, if you like, and it became apparent that this was quite a major exercise.
2: Simon hadn't initially planned to ask RICS for support, but when they learned of the project, they were keen to support it. After some work on getting the funding needed, the draft of the second version has been published and is open for public consultation.
3: It aims to broaden the scope of the document to make it clearer and more transparent and more useful to those outside the UK
2: it also considers a changing energy landscape.
0: Historically, people have been used to looking at the operational energy use and the carbon emissions that come out of that. Uh, and of course, we were now talking about embodied emissions as well. But what became apparent from 2017 onwards was that the shift from the biggest problem with buildings being energy use, because now buildings were getting more efficient I, and the grid is decarbonising, The embodied carbon costs of a building were starting to outweigh those of the operational energy carbon costs.
2: That change, reflected in the revision, marks an important change in how we should consider the carbon costs of a building.
0: What we realised was that there is a cost benefit, a carbon cost benefit equation here, which is that, you know, if, if you put in, let's say, some extra insulation, you have an embodied carbon cost of the installation, but you get an operational carbon benefit.
3: And Simon began to realise understanding a building's carbon cost needs to be a consideration of how long it will last and where the materials it is built from are sourced.
0: I think the other things that started to become clear also was that things like, um, if you're taking a great deal of interest in the life cycle of a building, because you're interested to know what the carbon costs over the building's life are, then you're also starting to take an interest in how durable that building is. You have to start examining things like the supply chain, where do things come from? uh, and, And also you're starting to promote things like local sourcing because that cuts down on diesel use by lorries delivering materials and products and things. So it is encouraging, if you like, the design team to look local to a site which has benefits to local economy, but it also reduces carbon emissions
2: when you consider carbon, you can start to see wider benefits.
0: There was a range of benefits that came out of a whole life assessment that were, more, were, were carbon related, but not necessarily just about carbon. Being a low carbon building and concerned about your carbon footprint helps you um, look at things like uh, reuse and recycling and, 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 and a circular economy and so on, because those are all he- levers that help you reduce the carbon footprint. So also, following from that, it encourages things like refurbishment and retrofit, where you're reusing buildings, because that also helps you reduce the carbon footprint of the, the final product. It also encourages people to take much more interest in how, you know, things, get, you know, what the life of their building is, how it can be reused, can it be disassembled? All of those things contribute to a better carbon outcome.
3: Once you start thinking about all the ways the construction and the use of the buildings and their end life affects their carbon costs, it's hard not to start imagining new approaches. But the document isn't meant to be prescriptive, it's meant to be a tool for that thinking process.
1: This is telling you, get information from X, process it through Y, gives you answer Z, it's a measurement methodology doesn't tell you that you should do this and shouldn't do that in respect of, you know, you shouldn't build anything new, you should always retrofit. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, that's not what this is. This is purely a a measurement methodology. What we've introduced and what the first or call it the first existing professional statement does is, is kind of set out that that method, that methodical process for measurement of carbon. It's, a, you know, it takes you through module A, B, C, D, tells you how to do things, what what to do, when to do it, to give you an answer.
2: When architects and surveyors use the guidance, they typically don't do so directly. Rather, they use software that is based upon it.
1: A lot of people, when we talk about whole life carbon assessments, they don't necessarily pick up the the RICS's standard, read it cover to cover, and then go away and and scribble down a whole life carbon assessment. The way in which most people... uh, interacts with it for want of a better phrase um is through you know there's the software app the software online and the software packages that you can buy that essentially allow you to plug and play so you 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 put them up on your screen you import the project specific data you tell that you know you tell the, the software what what you're building what you know all the project parameters what what materials you're using, the quantity of all those materials. And in essence, it then churns out uh, an answer.
3: And that can be a problem. Sometimes different software packages can give you very different assessments of your carbon costs. Matthew saw that when he talked to users of the software.
1: One thing I found from having those conversations and people that that are following the the first edition of this is that there, there was a lack of consistency there's a lack of transparency almost in 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 the process of doing a whole life carbon assessment i've spoken to somebody who who's essentially undertaken a whole life carbon assessment on on the same building uh, or the same project i should say using two differing methodologies if you like um and they they came up with quite wildly different results to the tune of you know probably about 25 percent so straight away that tells you that that, that that we have a bit of an issue because being being kind of um blunt about it which 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 answer are you going to take well you're going to take the answer that probably gives you the, the answer that's more preferable but that's not necessarily the right way of doing this.
2: The new revision of the guidance seeks to offer clarity and transparency, allowing users to have more trust in tools that are based on it.
1: The RSS's professional statement, first edition, probably isn't as, as clear as it needs to be, hence we're producing the second edition, in terms of some of the assumptions that you have to make. So when you're doing a, an assessment, you know, on day one you're making an assessment over the life of that building so that you know the, the 60 years or however long that building's going to last you're making some assumptions around you know how often you you know for a uh, taking a, a, an office building for example how often are you going to change the facade how often are you going to replace the windows how often are you going to have to re- replace your um, air conditioning units ha- air handling units? all of those things you have to make an assumption about based on the information you have on that day those assumptions can vary quite wildly hence that 25 percent overall variance in the answer so what we've tried to do now is make the the ability to make those assumptions less so that actually everybody's working to the same process and now i accept every building generally is is unique so that there are always going to be some issues or some difficulties with project-specific information, and, and we've allowed for that. But what we're saying is that uh, when you don't know the answer to those questions, what we've done is, is, is provided some default answers, if you like, so that actually everybody's working to the same information.
2: As we saw in a recent episode, 205, on greenshoring, the manufacturing industry struggles to find reliable data on the carbon cost of materials the building industry faces many of the same challenges.
0: One of the things has been, but is less so, is a dearth of information on, you know, what is the carbon cost of a piece of steel? People are wanting to make those calculations for what the carbon footprint of their building is over its life. That is starting to mean that there are questions being asked of the supply chain and suppliers and so on, so that this is becoming an issue that they're starting to become concerned about because... If you're getting steel from one sort of furnace or another sort of furnace, then there's a difference in the carbon footprint of that.
3: To build the basis for the reliable and trustworthy tools that Matthew says users need requires a firmer set of assumptions.
2: The RICS and other organisations and standards bodies are starting to develop reliable methods of forming these assumptions.
0: The RICS is also got a a built environment carbon database which they've only just set up and I think that will start to collect this kind of data so it'll be building related data but also product material and material data and I think until we've got a pretty robust database that is evolving now there is a, a material database in the UK which is the Bath ICE database.
2: That's the Bath University Inventory of Climate and Energy Database which you can find a link to in the show notes.
0: That is materials, so and you can use that combined with quantities to generate carbon factors for things. And obviously, most products are made out of lots of different materials. So you have to do some sort of kind of combined thing, if you see what I mean. And you have to add in things like transport and what have you. So it is not difficult to do. I mean, you, it's just a bit time consuming, but you can work it out for, for almost anything.
2: The RICS WHOLE LIFE Carbon Assessment is a professional statement. Like other guidance and standard documents, it's a tool that users can choose to use, or not.
3: But tools like this are vital. Without paying attention to the carbon impact of everything we do, the world faces a terrifying future.
2: Even if architects and surveyors can see the benefits, how can the commercial owners of projects be pushed to consider carbon costs, alongside financial costs?
3: Simon says that the first step is not to see carbon accounting and financial accounting in opposition.
2: It's not always a question
0: of paying more. And indeed, most of the clients that I've done worked with directly have said, look, you can't um, spend any more money, but we want a lower carbon building. So what we have done and what you know anybody can do in, in those sort of situations is that you look at the design as proposed at the early stages.
2: And when you start thinking about carbon early, you often realise you can save money as well as saving the planet.
0: Now we did an analysis for a a big housing developer who are building all around Wembley. What we did is we demonstrated they could have reduced the carbon. This is on a finished, just recently finished scheme. So they wanted to understand the process. So we... um, worked out that they could have could have saved by changing specification about 40% of the carbon footprint of building it, if they'd made different choices. And the client said, not unreasonably, well, you're just carbon assessors. What do you know about money? And uh, they got a QS to look at what we'd produced. And the QS said, well, three quarters of what you've suggested would have been cost neutral or better. And the other percentage, the 10% left over, if you like, or the quarter left over, would be worth tendering and just seeing what happened.
3: As more developers use tools like this and support new suppliers based on their carbon accounting, those additional costs will start to come down.
0: It is not the case necessarily uh, to say you have to spend more money. Obviously, on occasion, you may have to, if it's an innovative and slightly weird product, shall we say, that's not people haven't used before. Uh, but as a general rule what we're trying to do is is improve resource efficiency if you're improving resources resource efficiency ultimately you should be bringing costs down now i wouldn't say that's guaranteed at the outset by any means but as i've said it is you know if you're being careful and 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 only choosing those things that are cost neutral or better well then you know you can certainly get down to a certain level and i think as a sort of general rule at this point in time i think it's certainly possible to get 20 to 30% reductions on most projects.
2: Once developers and contractors see the potential downside of cost can be overcome, they should start looking at the upside of winning contracts that they wouldn't otherwise have won.
1: It's used by um, some big, big developers. In the UK specifically, you know, on their on their projects. So when they're looking at, at developments in the UK, they'll, they'll, you know, they want to know for their own um, ESG reporting requirements and their own um, sustainability requirements what the, the the whole life carbon is of those of those projects. So they'll they'll undertake a whole life carbon assessment, and many of those follow
3: the RRCS's methodology. Increasingly, developers look to the future carbon costs of their developments.
0: I've had conversations with a number of large developers who are thinking along these lines, that you know, you start to be, when you, before you buy a building, is, in addition to being concerned about, can I put two stories on, or can I push it out on this side or, or whatever it is, what is the carbon cost of this building likely to be going forward? Is, is, is this something that you know impacts on the, 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 the price? Because if you're buying something that's going to be really problematic in carbon terms, Maybe you don't buy it.
2: That thinking then makes them think about the second-hand value of their buildings.
0: And that again puts pressure further down the line onto people building buildings have got to do good quality buildings from a carbon perspective in order for them to retain their value. When a building is completed, at that point, from that point in time, the materials in that building typically have no, no financial value. What they do do is they close space and the space has the value. But if you knock that building down, you can't sell the bits and pieces that it's made of for anything, can you? So, you know, but it is a question of how long will it all last? Because how long can it enclose that space and make it valuable, you know, without having to be spent further money spent on it or work done to it and so on?
3: At the same time, governments have made net zero commitments that they can only achieve if a tool like this is used. The May
1: 2022 House of Commons Environmental Audit Committee, which Simon gave evidence to. Recommends the RICS's methodology for measurement of whole life carbon. So government are recommending it. Now, there's no government have not mandated the use of any whole life carbon assessment methodology as as we sit here today. But we would very much hope that when they do, because it will be when not if, and it will be the RISS's methodology that that's
0: that's prescribed if we can include whole life carbon assessment within building regulations then that means that that will be considered at a more sort of granular level
2: government whether central or local also has commercial muscle Increasingly, it is using this to push the use of tools like the RICS Whole Life Carbon Assessment.
1: It is the methodology used by a number of planning authorities in the UK, so the Greater London Authority being probably the best example. So for all referable planning applications, so that's planning applications over a certain size.
2: Referable means a planning application for projects so big, they must be referred to the Mayor of London for approval.
1: Any project of that size has to have a whole life carbon assessment undertaken when it's submitted for planning. And what the GLA say, the Greater London Authority say, is that whole life carbon assessment has to be in accordance with the RRCS's methodology.
0: If government is doing whole life carbon assessments on their infrastructure projects of all sorts, you know whether it's building things for the MOD or its hospitals or railways or whatever it is they're building, if they were doing those assessments, that in itself, I think, would have a huge impact down the supply chain, across industry uh, and everywhere.
2: Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was hosted by me, rian Owen, and John Young. Written and produced by Will North. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the guide that shapes our carbon-efficient development and operations is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn and Instagram.